Hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. Uh, my name is Alex, as you may have guessed from the fact that I just said that, and with me as ever is Alaric, whose name I just said. How are you? Hello. I don't even get to say my own name this time. <laughs> no. I think that's a first. <laughs> it's a bit, yeah. Well, you know, I thought, you know, luxury, right? Yeah. I, I yeah. feel pampered. Cool. Do you want to do some maths? Yes. I've been thinking about resistors. Back at GCSE, so back at high school, doing some science, you learn about the rules for parallel and series resistors. And I know how to apply those rules, and through school you do some problems where you have to reduce a whole lot of resistors into one resistance. I'm imagining a kind of practical problem here. Let's say you've got a big box of 1 ohm resistors. It's as large as you want. How do you practically use that to make a particular resistance? Possibly what we're going for here is minimum number of resistors, but if there's some nice systematic way we can do, that'd be great. Just so we're completely clear on the rules, the resistance of a series link of resistors, yep. i.e. end-to-end, is the sum of their resistances. Yep. So if we had three one ohm ones in a row, it would be 1 plus 1 plus 1, which is 3. And the resistance of a parallel set of resistances yep. is equal to the inverse of the sum of their inverses. Is that right? Yes. So 1 over the total resistance is equal to the sum of 1 over each of the separate resistances. It reminds me a little bit of uh, when people are talking about genetics yep. and they're saying, oh, I'm one-third Spanish, but like you can't get to one-third Spanish because it's not a binary fraction. Yeah, I mean, you can... With infinite. You can tend towards it, but you can't get there exactly. You yes, can't exactly. get there exactly over the span of all human existence, yeah. Since Spanish was invented, you cannot get there. <laughs> yes. Um, whereas with resistors, you can get to any rational number. Okay, this is known and proven. I've got a really inefficient way that we'll get there, but I'm hoping we can do some fancy ways to get there much more efficiently. So you've got one ohm, so we've got every positive natural number. Yep, because we can just keep putting them in series, add them together. Mm. Oh, I'm going to revoke my statement. I can make every positive rational number. Okay. Fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. All right, okay. That's more of an extension question, but if you had negative one ohm resistors, could you get every negative? Most likely. Yeah, that feels likely. Yeah, feels likely to me. Uh, We'll think about that later. I guess if you wanted to get to every other resistance... You've just got to be able to get to every number between 0 and 1. Because you can just add that onto the end of a series link of... uh... That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you've done what happens if you chain a whole lot of series ones together. If they're all 1 ohm in parallel, what do you get? Well, if you have 2, it is a half. Yes. If you have 3 of those 1s... Yep. You get third, and so on. Yes. And so you get all the harmonic numbers. Yes. And in fact, once you got all the harmonic numbers, let's say you were aiming for four sevenths, you could put seven in parallel to get a seventh, and then you could keep doing that four times and add them all together. Not to cut the section short, but I've got the answer, (laughs) (laughs) which is that all of the harmonic numbers contain all of the uh, negative powers of two, and so you can create any natural number through, through its binary representation. So you add a half and a quarter and an eighth and a sixteenth and so on. Okay. I'm not worried about that cutting the section short. Because, yes, that gets to all of them. What I quite like to think about is how we could do it, possibly getting the minimum number, or find some bounds on how many that you have to use to get to things. Yes, the most efficient route somewhere. Because, obviously, if you wanted to get to a third, that is an inordinate number of things, because you'd have to add together, like, a half, and then a sixteenth, and then a sixty-fourth. But you could just have three. Starting with a half to get to a third is going to make it hard. (laughs) <laughs> okay yeah sure <laughs> fine um, but yeah. yes but exactly you, you, you know what I mean like because you could just put three in parallel rather than uh, yeah and whereas we know that a third is doable in three because it's just three in parallel now doing combinations of these things doing sub series bits within parallel bits or the other way around suddenly you can make a whole lot of new things yeah and so something that may take three resistors in a weird configuration might take you loads normally. It feels a, a bit like a pure maths problem where we've got two operations we can do, series and parallel. It's kind of like in, in some maths things where you've got addition and multiplication as your base operators. Mm. Then you're working out like what else is in the set, what else can you create. Yeah, but one of the operators is nice and the other one is horrendous. Yeah, yeah. What is the, the generalised formula for, let's say you have two things in parallel 
So I'm going to call them resistances A and B. So 1 over R is 1 over A plus 1 over B. Where A and B is some integer number, or let's say just to start with some integer number of 1 ohm resistors. The resistance here is AB, so the product over the sum. AB over A plus B. Shall we see what it is for three of them? Uh, It's probably also the product over the sum, I'd imagine, but give it a crack. I think we're going to get some sub-products. Oh god, it'll be the sum of the pairs of... Yeah. It's the product ABC over the sum of the sub-products. AB plus BC plus AC. Yeah. And I can see that continuing. Just doing the same method again. It's always going to be the product over the sum of whatever you call the product which has one fewer term of all the combinations. But here's something slightly easier, I suppose. Four of them in parallel is... Well, I haven't done the numbers on this, but I'm imagining it's probably the same as two parallels of two in parallel. Okay, that makes sense. But it also doesn't at the same time if you play through what you just did in your head. Because we should have the, the, the product of all four divided by the sum of all four different ways of multiplying three of them together. I'd like to actually work through that algebra, so I'm yeah. going to quickly do it here. It does work out as the same. Oh, it does work out the same when you do two different parallels. Yeah, so I put A and B together, C and D together, and then treated those total resistances as two separate ones to combine as a two. Mm-hmm. We know that you should, but the algebra works, works out exactly the same thing. There's no extra shortcut it's giving us there. So that's useful as well. Well, one of the ways you could do it is you could just add together harmonic numbers until you get there, which is really weird because it's not a normal base system to use. And the other one just kind of assumes that there is some compact parallelization that you can do that gets there faster than a series sum of harmonic numbers. It feels almost like, say, chess endgames, where there are very few pieces left on the board. Yeah. We've solved all of the positions for a certain number of pieces down. I think it's about eight. So let's say if there's eight pieces on the board or fewer, we know exactly the best play, just because we've mapped all the tree. Whereas each time you add an extra piece on, that's a lot more positions to add on. And the way they're working them out is they start with all the ones which are actually in checkmate, and then you slowly regress which ones can you get to there in one move, and so on, going out as a big tree. Because each move only has like a few, well, it's got a finite number of moves that could have led there. Similarly with this, we start off with something really simple, like the number we're aiming for, and then we consider what possible moves could have been there the step before, and we slowly branch out backwards like that, until you recognise one which is just integers at every point. Can you do that backwards like that? Well, if we think of something like a third as the uh, the thing we were aiming for, if we think of what moves could have led there, and as we go, rule them out. So, for instance, one of the moves that could lead to places normally is, did we just add another one in series? Well, with a third as our target, we going back a step, that would say we'd have had to have been on minus two thirds before, which was an invalid move. And so we can just scrub out that whole branch. Our other I steps see. we could have done are maybe we had some in parallel, and then you consider like how many in parallel, just right. slowly chunking. How many possible actions are... It works for chess because there's a finite set of actions you could have applied, but if you map the operations, you can parallelize a single resistor into two. You can add another resistor to an already parallelized set. So what's the subtractive parallel thing? Let's say we've got our result resistance, and we're asking the question, what resistor must we have had that if we put a 1 ohm resistor in parallel with it, we'd get a target resistor. What I'm trying to do is the inverse of the operation of adding one in parallel. In the same way that if you had a pure math system, and you had your two operators as plus and multiplication, then we can define inverse operations, subtraction, division. I'm wondering what the equivalent of division is here. Yeah, I'm just uh, trying to view it in my head. So you've got big R equals... 1 over 1 over little r plus 1, and you're trying to solve for 1 over little r. Little r is the fraction of big R over 1 minus big R. Ooh, wait, does that work? If I put in 2, I get 2 over minus 1. Yeah, big it's, it's so big R here is the resistance we're aiming for, so in, th- in this case it would be like a third or that sort of thing, rather than 3. Because if you put in 2, what you're saying is, how do we get an overall resistance of 2 
by putting two things in parallel, one of which is a one ohm resistor. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. spitting out something negative because it can't be done. Yeah, because that's not possible. Okay, yeah, I'm so yep. I'm, I'm looking for a third. So let's say big R is a third. Yep. What do you get for little r? So it's a third over one minus a third. It multiplied on the top and the bottom by three. Oh. That's one over three minus one, which is a half. That's pretty good. Which we knew it had to be. Yes, because that's three in parallel. You take one out away from that and you get two in parallel. Yeah. I found a, a rearrangement that might help. So we had little r as big R over one minus big R. That was our subtraction formula. Yeah. If you divide the top and the bottom of that by big R, because it's never going to be zero. Yeah. You get 1 over 1 over big R minus 1. That's probably more useful because 1 over big R is quite a use. Often these are reciprocals we're aiming for. Yeah, that's true. And then because that's its own parallelizable, well, that's its own thingy yeah. that, is, that might be able to be expressed as the sum of some inverses. Oh, I think I've found a problem in this. What I've been doing is trying to subtract one series one or one parallel one. I've been kind of referring to them as subtraction and division, but they've both been by one. That isn't the complete operation of what could happen. It could be that we have to split something into two parts, neither of which will one. Let me think of an example. I think that's okay. Okay, because then you can just treat it as separate problems for each of those. Well, so the thing is that for any big R, for any resistant, there's an infinite number of pairs of numbers that could add up to it, right? Yeah. Which is quite a big optimization problem, because then you have an infinite search space. With two moves at every position, it's geometric. You start at your initial position, and every time you have to check two different things. Occasionally you can throw one out, because occasionally one goes negative, but it gives you any positive number, then you're all good. So I'm thinking we start off with an example that we don't know how to do, and we see where it leads. So do you want to give me a fraction? Any rational number is also possible by lining up the numerator number of denominators. So I'm struggling to think of an expressible number. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so if we do 3 sevenths, we know we can do that in 21 resistors right. by doing 7 in parallel, 7 in parallel, 7 in parallel, and then adding them all together. So any rational number P over Q, we can do in PQ resistors. So that gives us an upper bound. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's a better upper bound than, than doing the binary approach, right? But the binary approach can do all reals, not just all rationals. Let's work out the bound for the binary approach on a rational number, so on P over Q. What's the worst case scenario? Infinite. Anything that's not explicitly binary, which is to say that its denominator is not a power of two, means you need an infinite number of fractions to... Yeah, that is a bad bound. I'm struggling for a way to represent this, but what I want to do is start at any target number, and then draw an arrow going one direction for series ones. Like taking off one in series and doing an arrow in a different direction for taking off one in parallel yeah there's too many subunits yeah well there's yeah, yeah it's very hard to describe what that would do you know it almost feels just a random process there are a certain number of subunits to any let's call it an expression of resistors right you could add one in series to any sub expression yep or you could add one in parallel like take one away parallel or take one away in series but let's assume that you don't want to take one away because that doesn't make any sense right let's assume you're just sort of adding resistors till till you get what you want yeah so the, the, the concept of taking one away if that makes sense in like reverse yes so you would never be doing both of these things there's probably a, a calculus you can start to apply forwards and i'm wondering whether forwards might not be easier than backwards i see what you mean so you start off with the number i suppose you can think of it as zero because that's the number before you have any resistors yeah. And then you can keep either doing one more in series or one more in parallel. I, I'm i still struggling at the back of my mind that this doesn't work in some way. That sometimes we're going to have to build clumps up independently and then combine them. That's what I'm saying by subunits, right? Like, you might have two really complex clumps in parallel and that's the answer. And so, going backwards on this, my operations aren't just subtract one series-wise or subtract one parallel-wise, it's also split series or split parallel into two subjunks, and that has too many branches coming off. But you're not taking one off in parallel, you might be taking one away from some parallelization that's inside, right? So imagine one where it's like, there's two main splits, one is 
one resistor on the lower hand side. I go left to right. On the lower yeah. hand side is is one resistor, and then on the upper hand side, you have a parallelize a parallelization of one resistor and another two in parallel. Okay. Oh wait, no, that's the same as three. Uh, parallelization of one, and then one plus another two in parallel. You know what I mean? Like these yeah, things, I do. They, these things don't break down uh, too tidily. There was a puzzle a couple of years ago by GCHQ. They rolled it out again in one of their puzzle books. But it had a whole lot of resistor clumps going around the edge. And in the middle was a, a big grid, a 13 by 13 grid of letters. As you went around each resistor clump, if you reduced its resistance to a fraction, it gave you some number in the form P of a Q, where P and Q were between 1 and 13. Uh, so giving you a good reference. Yeah. They obviously wanted to make a whole lot of resistances that were anything from 1 to 13 on both top and bottom. Some of them they didn't do with just series and parallel calculations. I had to um, look up physics because I hadn't done any resistors really past um, physics A level. Do you know about delta Y transformations? The idea is there are some resistance for resistor clumps that you can't reduce by just series and parallel calculations. So the simplest one only uses five resistors. Oh, is that the one where it's like two branch outwards and then there's like one that joins each of their ends and then also on those ends it's two coming back together again? I know what you mean, but I'm not sure the listeners will because I know what the picture um, you're aiming for. Imagine it. a rhombus of resistors with another vertical resistor going from the top to the bottom. Yeah, where the in the input and the output are on the left and the right hand sides. Yeah. Yeah. It's like two equilateral triangles pushed up against each other. Yeah. Um, that one, no matter how you do it, you can't reduce it by either taking more than off in series or considering two branches in parallel. It's almost a combination of those things. But there are ways of reducing those sort of things. I don't know if resistor theory goes further than that or whether you can use that trick plus series and parallel to do everything. Yeah. Do you? No, I don't. I don't even know how you would... So if you can't break it down by series and parallel, how do they know what resistance it makes? They just have to measure it. There is a way... So it's called a delta Y transformation. Delta is in capital delta triangle. And Y is in three lines going into the same point. There is a way that you can consider three resistors in a triangle. You can replace that with three resistors in a Y shape. And you can work out what the new resistances has to be on each of those three. Okay. Or vice versa. Uh, by like, uh, they solve some simultaneous equations of triangle. Yeah, it's exactly then... that. Right, okay. Um, and then once you've done that transformation, sometimes you want to go one way, sometimes you want to go the other, but then you just carry on doing series and parallel calculations. Right. I don't know whether that's sufficient for then solving all resistor problems. The ones I can't do are the ones where they go like infinite, self-recursive. I think I sent you one on Messenger at one point. That was, the, was that the famous XKCD one of an infinite grid of 1M resistors? No, it's What's sniping. The... Yeah. What is the resistance between something that's 2-1 away? 2-1 being a sort of Knight's move. system. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have no idea how to do that. And yeah. I sent it to you. And uh, you said seven questions aren't worth answering. The problem is, it's one of those things that you learn when you're like 15. And you like you know it's a hard question. And, and then you ask it to all of your like people who are smarter. As, yeah. a, way of, as a way of saying, hey, look how smart I am that you don't know this. But like... You don't know it either when you're asking. <laughs> so, it's, oh, uh, it's... to be clear, when I sent it to you, I was actually asking because I wanted to know. Yes, but I'm 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 imagining that probably some student asked you in a in a vaguely in a vaguely self-satisfied way. That That's they... not true. No, that's I was okay. <laughs> I was looking at the G- GCHQ puzzle at the time. Right. Okay. Got it. I I but cause I, my own problems. That is an example of of, of something. Of, uh, sometimes problems are wielded with evil intent and that is one that is oft picked up because it is oft discovered well actually I don't know whether kids know XQCD anymore this might not be a problem going forward uh, I certainly share it a lot in my class but yeah maybe it's maybe it's gone do kids even like enjoy web comics I'll do a poll I think I think ever since um, ever since Homestuck ended I'm pretty sure that was the end of web comics I still read XKCD XKCD and like dinosaur comics and things like that but still so where have we got to with this? PQ for rationals, infinite for irrationals. Yep. That's not horrendous. It's pretty much where, where I was before we came into this. I think PQ for rationals is optimal, because if you try and think of how to make, like, 1 over 7, it feels really fundamental just to line up 7. 
in parallel. I'm sure we can come up with a, a counterexample of that quickly. Should we quickly have a go? What I'm going to do is I'm just going to draw like four resistors at random in some like horrible configuration and see what it equals. Okay. Okay, five over three. I've done in four resistors. Oh, okay, and that would normally be 15. Yeah. So I did it as uh, two parallel to one and then add one at the end. Which is the same as two over three and yep. then you've added one on the end. It's five over three. Five over three, which would otherwise be... Fifteen. Well, for greater than one... You can just add one. You can also go two one thirds. and six, right? You can do it yeah. in seven. Yeah. Like, you could you could do it in seven by adding one to two over three. That's still not as good as what you just did. It's tough. It feels like we know how the series adding works. And then the parallel is almost just like a random number generator. Yeah, I mean, it'll be transformations in some kind of configuration space. But I, I don't have the like the geometric visualization of that. It's the kind of thing that, that you need a like a nice piece of graphing software to show you the whatever matrix transformation it is, take you from one to the other. If you were designing a program, let's say you wanted to design a calculator online so that people trying to make resistors could just type it in. How would you program this up? Would you just do a massive search tree? I think the way I do it is a big lookup table with you put so you've got one in series and then you keep adding other ones on, and then you do a little table of um, a one ohm in parallel with a one, a two ohm in parallel with a one, a three ohm in parallel with a one, and so on, and then do another one with one and two, two and two, three and two, and so on. You could build quite a large bank of common non-trivials. Yeah, like a bank of. 20,000 or so that can just be looked up to get you any... Once you know where you are on the main path, then you're all good. Yeah, it's a bit like, you know, when you're first learning programming, I don't know if you ever did any sort of baby's first programming at university degree. Yeah, yeah, we did as well. When you're first learning programming, one of the things that they teach you is calculating Fibonacci numbers using recursive techniques, and and you're trying to get a more and more performant algorithm that calculates Mm -hmm. Fibonacci numbers. And the hack for that is just for the first hundred or something like that and then maybe make it sparse after that it's just to pre-calculate a bunch of them because the moment that you've actually got the answer for one of them it just skips it all and so the most performant algorithm is not one that goes recursive forever it's one that goes recursive up to a point that's known and then they just skip it so for this if you're building something that built this out you would just have some kind of do you want a weird generator for Fibonacci go on then Ben showed me this so our computer friend so a robot real person (laughs) he is our computer friend but he's made of flesh and blood just like the rest of us if you take the matrix 1 1 1 0 so it's a 2 by 2 matrix 1 1 on the top and then 1 0 if you try taking powers of that so if you try doing it squared so it's it 2 1 1 1 that looks good yeah and so if we try doing it to the power of 3 well we already know what it is to the power of 2 so we can use that result 3, 2, 2, 1. Yep, that looks good. Okay. 8 to the power of 2. Oh, sorry, 8 to the power of 4. Nah, you're on your own. So we had 3, 2, 2, 1, and we're multiplying that by 1, 1, 1, 0. 5, 3, is it 5, 3, 2, 1, just as a guess? 5, 3, 3, 2. two. The terms inside the matrix are Fibonacci. Yeah, they are. So in the top left you have, like, the most advanced Fibonacci number. Um, the one directly below it and to its right are the Fibonacci number before that. Yep. And the one in the bottom right is the Fibonacci number two before it. Yep. Multiplying matrices is quite an efficient thing on computers. This ends up being quite an efficient algorithm for generating Fibonacci numbers recursively. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Adding numbers is also quite efficient on computers as well. But if Ben told you that, then it's probably... I, I think Ben showed me this after someone did it in an interview where he was the interviewer. Right. He was impressed. Yeah. Right. I like it. Yeah. My work had we had this off-site thing where you spend a day together, everyone in the company. And we had a visitor to speak to us in the afternoon and they were there to talk to us about cognitive diversity and the performance that you can get from having people who think differently from each other the different mental models and so on okay um, in companies where they're trying to do really solve really hard problems you know you're not, you're not churning butter you're doing that's how this podcast works we think differently and we bring problems to each other yeah that's true that's true 
so we we benefit from our cognitive diversity on the uh, on the show. But the speaker made a passing comment about something mathematical, and I wanted to pick up on it. And okay. I haven't done an enormous amount of research into it, so I figured we could explore it together. Yep. Um, she was talking about metrics for diversity. So let's say you have one person who thinks in pictures, one person who thinks in numbers, and one person who thinks in sounds. How would you create a metric for how diverse these two, uh, these three people are? Um, obviously, they are maximally diverse because they're all different from each other. But let's say that, for example, you have two people who think in sounds, one person who thinks in pictures, and one person who thinks in numbers. Then what's a good metric for how diverse that group is? Such that, you know, if, if we wanted to say within a company of maybe 2,000 people, how cognitively diverse do we want to be? It's nice to have like a bar that you can pass. Yeah, we want 100% to be like everything is as diverse as possible. <laughs> well, so... I guess 100% diversity would be everybody is completely different from each other. Hmm. Which is generally not possible because people, in, in a company of 2,000 people tend to hire people who are similar to them and so eventually you're going to have two people who are the same by whatever metric that you are classifying people with. So we're, we're not just saying about like whether they understand things, say, kinetically or audibly or that sort of thing. We're saying they could differ from each other in loads of different ways. Or are we restricting yeah. it to... Here's the list of which ways people can differ. The way to think about it is we have this one particular set of buckets and we classify individuals by that set of buckets. And then... Is each individual in one bucket or another? Or are you have they... multiple axes, right? So you can be diverse along, uh, you know, languages you know, background, like demographic background. But like, but in, in terms of cognitive diversity as well, you have... Uh, they were talking about how... You have your educational background is one measure of cognitive diversity. Yep. And then you have your uh, hobbies and interests is another one. I mean, we're not doing well in differing on both of these in that we met each other at university and this is our hobby. Podcasting was not on the list. I have to go and have to put it down as other distraught. <laughs> yeah, so basically you have a bunch of axes and you kind of intend that you want to be sufficiently cognitively diverse in a bunch of, in a bu- in a bunch of different ways, in a bunch of different axes. Yeah. The hobbies people have, their demographic background, their like educational background, all the, all these things. Anyway, suffice it to say that there for on on each particular axis there are a certain number of, of buckets. Um Another way to think about this is it's used in biodiversity measures. So not like slightly politically charged diversity things. But if you're measuring the biodiversity of a forest, you'll put down like a a one meter square. What are they called? Quadrats. Yeah. Quadrats. Yeah. And you'll count the number of species that you can find in that that one square meter. My mum literally does that. You know, there's lessons at primary school where you go out with your bug pooters and your quadrats and things. My mum doesn't necessarily do the bug part, but that's her job. She's an ecologist. And my dad made her a, a two meter by two meter one, which folds up. But I think they actually use them because if you are there spotting wildflowers yourself, it's very easy to be like, oh, look, there's another one. And to like bring your own bias into it. Whereas yeah. where there's a physical square, you can't cheat it. Yeah. Put it down, count it up. Yeah. And so they have to be, there's a metric for that as well. And so, yeah, I guess it's like, what's what what's a good metric? So one... So... Do you want to think about it first and then I'll give a suggestion? So I'm going to come to this from the context of having spent the, the whole day up to now playing RimWorld. In that, you've got various colonists. It's a, a micromanaging kind of work sim game. In that, certain colonists are good at certain traits, like, I don't know, mining or something. In that, what I want from my colonists is not everyone as a jack-of-all-trades. It's that person is good at cooking, that person will be cooking forever, they have specialised. What I want in the colony is every thing covered by someone. I suspect something similar to that would be true in companies. What you don't want is a whole lot of jack of all trades, although maybe they'd be useful sometimes. But what you want is people who can specialise and double down on their particular thing. So if you've got people with a whole lot of different buckets, I imagine you don't actually care about most of those buckets. You only care about does that fill the things that we are lacking in the company? So if you are a company that's specialised into um, the manufacture of cheese, as talking about churning butter earlier, then you might have a high number of slots intended for cheese manufacture. And so you want people who are particularly good at that. And then 
the one person who does land management law or something, you don't need him to be also good at churning the butter, because there is a natural role for that person. No, but here's the thing about cognitive diversity in this case, it's, it's very useful when you don't have things that are specified in manual, right? Like when you have one person who's good at shaping the cans and one person who's good at putting the butter into cans because canned butter for some reason. It has to be problems that are really meaty and hard, such that there is a benefit from, let's say, having someone who's good at land management and someone who's good at churning butter applying their thoughts to the concept of churning butter and then maybe the person with the land management thing will provide some kind of non-linear boon to the butter churning you know what mm. i mean yeah so it's, it's not as it's not as easily classifiable as that when you're thinking about how diverse a particular group is and, and you know the, the intention is that that there is as much diversity as possible such that you get all the benefits from that um, one metric that was talked about and I'm kind of interested in, in the maths of this metric is if you have a number of particular types of things, let's say there are 10, let, let's use it just on like colored balls. So you've got blue, red, and green. Okay. And there's 10 of them and there's four blue, four red, and two green. Yep. And you pick any two at random. What is the probability that they're the same color? And what is the probability that they're different? I see. Like that. Yeah. Um, obviously that one's, the, one's, one's the inverse of the other. And so that will be maximised when they're all the same. If you want them to be the same, yeah. That will give very similar scores. Imagine in your company of ten, if you've got eight blue, one red, one green, or eight blue, two red. So where you've, you've got a massive amount of one type of worker, one type of thinker. This would give a, a very small amount of difference in probability between whether you've specialised the few people who are specialising from each other or not. This maximises, like, how far you are away from the majority. Now, your metric works quite well when you've got lots of pots of very similar sort of numbers. But if most people think similarly, I don't think this gives enough difference between the small differences of the minorities. I guess that in any particular group, there would be a different impact based on what they switch to. And so you you can measure the delta in your score if one person were to switch to one thing and one person to switch to another. So let's say we've got eight balls that are blue, one green, one red. If we change a blue one into a green, that's probably going to have probably more of an outsized difference. Is that true? What's, if, what's the example here? So eight blue, one red, one green. Yep. You change the one of the blues into green, or you can change the red into a green. The blue into this, green makes more difference. I, because, because of graph theory, right? It's the number of pairs that you're eliminating. Yes. And so in any particular graph... You have arcs of one colour and arcs of another colour. One where they match and one where they don't. What I want in this metric is when someone thinks differently, so when something is in new colour, that to matter more. Ah, I suddenly understand the formula that I saw online for this now. Now I'm thinking about it in terms of graphs. Okay. So we're looking at this formula together, and some things are easy to write down but harder to say over the radio. It's giving it a total score somewhere between 0 and 1. This is the diversity score. And it's equal to, as a fraction, so the numerator is for each of the separate species, let's call them A, B, C, etc. Like that's the the total number of things in each species. It's the sum of like A multiplied by A minus 1 plus B multiplied by B minus 1 plus C, etc. All over the total number of organisms times the total number of organisms minus one. Which makes sense if you think about pairs. So, lay it on. Yeah. So, if there are four blue balls, then the number of pairs between them will be... Uh, Okay, it's triangle numbers. Four times four minus one. Yep. Right? It's choose two. Uh, Four times three, but then divided by two. Yes, you'll double count. But because we're double counting the total number of things as well... The double the counting double cancels counting. out. Got it. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, you could say it's half NN minus 1 divided by half NN minus 1, but just cancel the halves. Don't think about it like that. Put yourself in the shoes of one particular coloured ball. How many others do you see? And then it's that happens that many times. Yeah. Put yourself in each, each of the shoes, <laughs> and then it's N minus 1. I like this metric. Yeah, pretty good, right? What that is, is the chance that they're the same. 
if you want the chance that it's different, you do one minus that. That's a shortcut. I'm sure there's actually there's a more like bottom up way of doing. Could basically, you put yourself in the shoes. You count up how many are different. But that's harder to write down. So if most of your things are in the same category, so like our eight or one example, yeah, then doing this ratio, there's only one thing in the numerator that really matters because it's the big one, and then it's essentially over itself. Yeah, you essentially re- reduce it by two times open bracket n minus one close bracket, and you yeah. increase another one by two times that n, which can be really different if the n minus one is much bigger than the other one's n, then you'll have an outsized impact here. Isn't there a minimum amount depending on um, your total number of organisms? Because if you're summing these things, you're never going to get zero on the top. You can get zero on the top if everything is different. Oh, because, because it's the, got an n minus one in there. The n minus ones turn into zero, yeah. yeah. Got it. Cool. No, this is really neat. I like it. Hmm. Trouble is, it's an, this, it's an invented metric, right? Like, diversity is, a, is an invented concept, but it doesn't come from any physical principles. It's a synthetic metric. It's how many handshakes the people are doing in their own groups. So you've invited a whole lot of people along, the physicists, the chemists, and the biologists, to a conference. And at the start of the conference, they meet all the people in their own group. They, they all handshake. And then they're forced to socialise and they all handshake with everyone after that. It's the ratio of how many handshakes happened in the first instance over how many handshakes happened in the second instance. Not in the second instance, but in total. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Handshake. So, so they'll, they'll shake all the hands of the physicists twice. I can visualise that as a nice thing. That's a how different are the people in the room before you make them go and meet each other. Yes. And I don't think that there's a much better measure. You are right that it's not a natural system. Yeah. Because I can see that this is quadratic, because it's got triangle numbers in it. Yeah. And I was thinking before we even got here, I want to make it quadratic in some way. But why stop there? You can make this whatever you want. It group groups three. Like, what's the chance that all three are the same, yeah. for example? Let's say yeah. we're a species where everybody, you don't shake hands with one person, you shake hands as a, as a three, and you have hands that lock together as a, you know, that's the standard. Yeah. Yeah. That would impact maths quite a bit, I think. If you want to have a look at that formula, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's yeah. called Simpson's Diversity Index. And uh, this website seems to be mostly talking about it in a biological sense, so about species. They have some good formulas around woodrush, polyseedlings, bramble, Yorkshire fog, and sedge. This is very, very .co.uk, <laughs> this website. <laughs> is this um the same Simpson? Like, I know Simpson of Simpson's Paradox. And that it was another probability thing, another statistical thing. It makes me wonder if it was the same person. Edward H. Simpson. He described Simpson's paradox. Have you got it? Is it the same person? I don't know whether it's the same as Simpson's rule. Oh, I wasn't thinking of Simpson's rule. I was thinking of Simpson's paradox. Oh, okay. Then yes, it's the same Simpson. What's Simpson's paradox? Oh, what? it's the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Simpson's paradox, yeah. Have you got it? I remember what it is. It's the one where, like averages of what is it averages of small groups aren't the same as the average of the total group something like that yeah that's it i wrote a thing on my website so i'll put the link in the show notes but here's a a quick thing on it so imagine we've got two people playing games so we're going to have alice and bob and they're going to be playing chess against strangers online so they're not going to play against themselves so they're not going to play against each other they're playing against other people uh let's say in the first week alice plays a game and loses it and bob plays four but he only wins one of them if you look at who has the higher win ratio there bob won one out of four whereas alice won zero out of one so bob won more in the next week alice wins three out of four and bob wins one out of one so he plays fewer games but he he wins it again he's got a higher win ratio because he's got one out of one as opposed to three out of four but if you total them up for the whole two weeks the whole fortnight alice has won three out of five but Bob's only won two out of five. Mm. So in each time period, Bob had a higher win rate. And yet, overall, Alice had a higher win rate. Now, those are quite like reduced down examples. But there are lots of examples where Simpson's Paradox actually comes in. With It feels so wrong that that's even possible when yeah. you look at some of these data. I think it, it grew to fame because there was a case um, in an admissions to one of the American universities. UC Berkeley. Uh, yeah, that's it. Where they had the acceptance rates of male and female candidates for a whole lot of subjects. And in almost all of the subjects, the 
acceptance rate for female candidates was higher, but overall the acceptance rates for male was higher. Because in areas where the rates for men were higher, those were areas where women were applying more, and so that weighted it Yeah. overall. So typically things like English courses, which tend to be more female, more people get in overall, like there's less competition for those positions. Right. Whereas things like engineering, which was traditionally male, there were more candidates per place. Right. There's a physics problem I've been thinking about, and I don't want to Google it, I want to hash it out with you, and you might have an immediate answer. Oh god, right. (laughs) So, I'm driving along in a car, and you're on the back seat, and you're holding a helium balloon. So, by the ribbon, it's floating there, it's not quite touching the ceiling of the car, it's just floating there, kind of, next to you. Yep. I brake, suddenly. Which way does the balloon go? Yes. It goes the other way to the way you'd think. Okay, I'm not sure even which way I think anymore. Okay. I've got lost in this problem. Weird stuff happens when you brake in a car. To me, the idea that the balloon goes backwards when you brake in a car, I'm kind of okay with that. It's the it's when you accelerate that's the weird one. But um, just, just to get it all out, so when you brake in a car, you will lurch forward. A person will lurch forward. Okay. But we are heavier than the air. That makes sense to me. A helium balloon is lighter than the air because it floats, right? And so each lump of balloon (laughs) is lighter than an equivalent lump of air when you average it all together. I had two different theories about this, and I'm still not sure which way you're going to go on this. So let me hash out the two reasons that I think it might go in two completely separate directions. Way number one. When you're braking, it's like you're putting the heavier stuff forward in the car. So when I brake, I go forward because I'm lighter than the air. So the the air is going backwards relative to me. And you're so, heavier than the air, just for the record. You yes. go forward because you're heavier than the air. Yeah. Yeah. And so that logic would suggest that because the air is heavier than the balloon, it would push past the balloon, and so the balloon would go backwards, and the air would go towards the front of the car. Yes. Theory number two, when the air is forced to squidge towards the front of the car, that feels like the air is doing a kind of blowing action. It's physical air particles hitting the back of the balloon, which feels like it would take the balloon with it. What happens? First thing to note is that um, these things have densities, right? Yep. And so air can kind of slosh about a bit. It can become more dense in the front and less dense in the back. But the main answer is the first one, and it's because momentum. So well, it, it's, it's more to do with your mass, right? So if, if you have a uniform force, because a uniform force is applied in, in the car, it's G-force, right? It's kind of like everything's accelerating. But there's only so much space. You have a high momentum, and so when you brake, you'll be flung forward with a greater momentum than the air will be flung forward because you are more dense. Okay. And so your that force of you physically coming to a stop is also greater and so there's just more force knocking about yep analogously you to the air is the same as true as the air to the balloon in that case because the air is more dense and so it has greater momentum and so it wants to rush forward more than the balloon wants to rush forward when it's breaking yep thinking about it less in terms of forces and stuff and in terms of like wants to do because it's more intuitive you want to rush forward more than the air wants to wants to rush forward, and the air wants to rush forward more than the balloon wants to rush forward. And so when you brake, the balloon goes backwards. Okay. I What I find less intuitive, but it's the exact same logic, is when you accelerate, the balloon goes forwards. Which because, feels really wrong. Yeah. Which feels really wrong, because when remember, like uh, if you've been in a plane, and the plane's taking off, that's quite a lot of, a lot of accelerative force, and you're pushed backwards into your chair a little bit. Or, or you know, when a, when a car is taking off forwards. Um, it feels intuitively wrong because we forget that air's a thing. Yes. Whereas a helium balloon, we can see it, it looks like a thing, and so we expect it to act like all the other things. So your yeah. lunch on the back seat and things is moving in exactly the same way as you, and you get used to it. That's how objects are. Yes. Yeah, you, you have the back seat, you have a can of sodi pop, and it is uh, it is in a position where it can roll forwards and backwards. When you accelerate with the car, it, the can of soda will roll backwards. This is only in a closed system. So as soon as you're in a, a sports car, like a convertible car, then your balloon, if you accelerate, your balloon's going backwards. If it's above the windshield, yeah, it's just gone. Presumably even if it's a bit below. Yeah, because the air going over the top of it will actually lift it up a little bit due to lift. 
and then it'll get dragged out. But yeah, if it has exposure to exposure to the air, you'd be surprised how static the air is in a open top car. Like top of your hair goes, but it's not like you can barely hear the person next to you. That's why they're fun. You have the windshield. Okay. I want to play around with a helium balloon in the a convertible now. <laughs> Find like where the limit is. Or where Where's you can the accelerate air, yeah. and... Because if you imagine if, if it's by your feet, it's probably going to act the same. Yeah. Because the air is quite still there. So there is this kind of weird intermediate zone where it moves from stillness to rushing past you at 60 miles an hour. Even if you're not accelerating or decelerating, the balloon will be blown backwards if you lift it too high because it's being bombarded by air of a certain velocity. Drag. It, that's that's drag. Drag starts to come into effect. Drag is to do with, with moving air. Yep. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So thank you, everybody, for coming along on this show this week. What we normally do is we do a bit of a roundup. So what was the first thing we talked about? Um, so it was the resistance. Imagining we had a big box of one-ohm resistors and thinking how we could practically make resistances of any number. Oh, yeah. Well, that was fun to seek your te- teeth into, but we got nowhere when it came to the bounds. Yeah. Well, that is non-trivial. I agree. And I think the computer solution of just building up a database of which ones go to which ones is messy, but that is how I would do it to solve a natural problem like this. I liked thinking about it as an arithmetic. So thinking of it as like series is add and parallel is the weird kind of multiply. And yes. uh, seeing what, what like mathematical structure that makes. Getting into like how you can predict what comes from the parallel thing. We know the algebra, but it still seems a bit just like random. It's not like it's just adding and multiplying that we can see the way through the forest. And so no, I don't know how I would proceed in this. I wouldn't know either. Because it's like the, the jumps you can make are so strange. But then also, like, it's, there's a whole, like, which thing do you apply the thing to, right? Like, I guess if you had a final number and you could, I don't know, the paths, they're so difficult. Because part of me wants to take one bit and go like, okay, so this is a parallelization between this, which is easy, and this, which is hard. Let me now work on the hard thing. Yeah. But that might not always be the case. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, It was satisfying to me, but we didn't get very far. So it's kind of like a five for me. Okay. I'm going to go three. Okay. I, I enjoy the conversation, but I, I would like I would like some help, please, listeners, of um, maybe there is an obvious way to proceed in this. Or maybe it's just like, this is just some famous pure maths problem in disguise. Right. It's, it's the equivalent of us like chewing away at the collapse conjecture by just trying some of the base cases for a bit and then giving up. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> and the next thing we talked about was... Simpson's measure of diversity and just other just sort of general like thinking about measures of diversity I didn't expect to like it as much as I did Simpson's diversity metric is satisfying to me Mm. even if it doesn't come natural from the actual problem I think it is one that as I was building up my problem I think I would have got to something very similar to that it satisfies the the same things as I would want from the solution It's quadratic, it was prioritising the right things, it's giving a metric of 0 to 1, like, it's all, it all makes sense to me. And it's something I can see myself using. Yeah, I mean, I guess you as, as, as a teacher, for example, might not want to send all your students to the exact same university, and so you might apply that measure every year to which universities have my students ended up at, for example. <laughs> Unless you do want to send them all off to Cambridge to do maths, then. Uh, I mean, that's the dream. I, I was thinking about it a lot in terms of the business aspect that you were, you first brought it up in. But also mm. in the biological one. I, I, I like this as a metric. Mm. Mm. I can imagine it if you were doing some stuff with cellular automata. Because I quite like designing multi-species versions of that. Yeah. This seems a good metric for how diverse is the pool of the cellular automata. Yes, the... provided you can like sufficiently classify them. Yeah. So what I've been trying to do is like make predator-prey systems or parasite-host systems. We, we talked about it in an earlier episode. Yeah. But having multiple species, like many multiple species competing, this is a good metric for health of the pool. Yes. I want to call it seven, only because when we were looking up some of the stuff around this on Wikipedia towards the end, I've seen a gleaming castle on the hill, which may... Uh may lead to even greater pastures than this. Um, I agree with Seven. 
the last thing. That's when I asked you the physics problem, which is one I've had in the back of my mind for ages. I think it might be a famous thing, but it was one of those ones where I was pretty sure that as soon as I googled it, I was going to get straight to the answer. It was famously on YouTube. Right, okay. I think it was a Smarter Everyday video. One of the earliest ones. That might have been how we got his break. That and the chicken heads. Hmm. Yeah. I haven't seen that. I I will have my uh, watching cut out for tonight. This is in the same category as pigeon in a lorry. Pigeon in a truck. Yeah. (laughs) Type thing. Playing on a treadmill. Playing on a treadmill. That type of... Uh, didn't we talk about something really early on? I don't know whether this got into the... It was the, in like... the pilot, the um, Richard Feynman's water spout. Yeah, the unaired, unaired pilots of Odds and Evenings we talked about, a something in a similar category. Well, I mean, I, I like that I knew the answer. I don't know how correct my answer was, but <laughs> hopefully you got an intuitive sense. Yep. Physics is easy to think about when you think about things wanting to do things, because a lot of things want to do things. Light wants to go in a straight line. Particles want to attract to each other. It's a way to get around the idea of forces. I can think more about things wanting to do things. That makes sense. I was hoping that the answer was as it ended up being. I didn't want it to be that the air actually ends up pushing the balloon forward. Yeah, or something to do with lift. Yeah. Because that's always... A lift still doesn't make sense to me. Like, I I suspect the answer might have been long-term the balloon settles at the back, but actually with the impulse of the force of breaking it, it ends up getting carried with the air or something. Oh, it's like a transient effect or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, cool. Satisfied. Mm. If that remains the correct answer, and we don't get lots of listener emails in, no. I've just thought of an even more intuitive way of describing it. Are you, are you, yep. are you ready? Yep. yep. So on Earth, gravity goes down and the balloon goes up, right? Yep. In the car when it's braking, gravity goes backwards. Love it. So the, wait, hold on. No, gravity goes forwards, so the balloon yeah. goes backwards. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Easy. Great. Nine. Great. Well, thank everybody for coming along to the show this time. What are you about to say? You just no, <laughs> massive no, intake good. of breath. <laughs> okay. <It's just> laughing. <laughs> All right, good. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at twitter.com slash oddsandevenings. Hopefully you know how to spell these things. Um, that's a test. You need to learn how to spell odds and evenings if you want to talk to us. You can find me at at speakmouthwords. You can find the show in general at oddsandevenings.com. If you want to find another way to contact us, go there, forward slash contact. There's a web page. Or you can go on the main page, click the button that says contact, and you can fill something in there. Um, if you want to find Alowick, just talk to us on Twitter. That's the main way of getting in touch with him. And then I feel like there's probably another way to interact with the show. Oh, there's a Reddit, but... Who knows? And, uh, yeah, theme music by David Russell 323. And that's it. That's the show. Um, have a great... Summer's coming up. Have a nice one of those. I know we'll probably speak to you, you know, during the summer, but still. I feel like the sun's coming out now, so enjoy. Bye-bye. Australian. Bye-bye. I don't know how we got there. I don't know how we got there as well. Do you want to move on? (laughs) Yeah. Okay.